Chapter 7 of The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury by Julia Cartwright. Chapter 7 Rygate to Chevening. Although the town of Rygate lies in the valley, it certainly takes its name from the Pilgrim's Road to Canterbury. In Domesday it is called Schersfell, and it is not till the latter part of the 12th century that the comparatively modern name of Ridgegate, the Ridge Road, was applied, first of all to the upper part of the parish, and eventually to the whole town. In those days, a chapel dedicated to the memory of the blessed martyr, St. Thomas, stood at the east end of the long street, on a site now occupied by a market-house, built early in the last century, and part of the ancient foundations of this pilgrimage shrine were brought to light when the adjoining prison was enlarged some eighty or ninety years back. Another chapel, dedicated to St. Lawrence the Martyr, stood farther down the street, and a third, the chapel of Holy Cross, belonged to the Augustine canons of the priory founded by William of Warrenne, Earl of Surrey, in the 13th century. In Saxon days, Rygate, or Holm Castle, as it was then termed, from its situation at the head of the valley of Holmesdale, was an important stronghold and the vigour and persistence with which the incursions of the Danes were repelled by the inhabitants of this district gave rise to the rhyme quoted by Camden. The Vale of Holmesdale never won, ne never shall. At the conquest, the manor was granted to William of Warren, and from that time the castle became the most powerful fortress of the mighty earls of Surrey. In the days of John... It shared the fate of Guildford Castle, and was one of the strongholds which opened its gates to Louis the Eighth, King of France, on his march from the Kentish coast to Winchester. The Fitzalans succeeded the Warrens in the possession of Rygate, and in the reign of Edward the Sixth, both the castle and the priory were granted to the Howards of Effingham. Queen Elizabeth's Lord High Admiral, the victor of the Invincible Armada, lies buried in the vault under the chancel of Rygate Church. In Stuart times the castle gradually fell into decay until it was finally destroyed by order of Parliament during the Civil War, lest it should fall into the King's hands. Now only the mound of the ancient keep remains, and some spacious subterranean chambers which may have served as cellars or dungeons in Norman times. The priory has also been replaced by a modern house, and is the property of Lady Henry Somerset, the representative of the Earl Somers, to whom William III granted Rygate in 1697. Rygate is frequently mentioned in Cobbett's Rural Rides, and it was the site of the priory that set him moralising over monasteries and asking himself if, instead of being, as we take it for granted, bad things, they were not, after all, better than poor rates, and if the monks and nuns who fed the poor were not more to be commended than the rich pensioners of the state, 
who feed upon the poor. Close to this ancient foundation is the hilly common known as Rygate Park, a favourite haunt with artists who find endless subjects in the fern-grown dells and romantic hollows, the clumps of thorn-trees with their gnarled stems and spreading boughs, their wealth of wild flowers and berries. The views over Rygate itself and the Priory grounds on one side, and over the Sussex Weald on the other, are very charming, but a still finer prospect awaits us on the North Downs, on the opposite side of the valley, where the Pilgrim's Road goes on its course. The best way is to climb Rygate Hill as far as the Suspension Bridge, and follow a path cut in the chalk to the summit of the ridge. It leads through a beechwood on to the open downs, where, if the day is clear, one of the finest views in the whole of England, in the whole world, says Cobbett, breaks upon us. The Weald of Surrey and of Sussex, from the borders of Hampshire to the ridge of East Grinstead and Crowborough Beacon, near Tunbridge Wells, lies spread out at our feet. Eastward, the eye ranges over the Weald of Kent and the heights above Sevenoaks. Westward, the purple ridge of Leith Hill and the familiar crest of Hindhead meet us, and far away to the south are the Brighton Downs and Chanctonbury Ring. The line of yew trees appears again here, and after keeping along the top of the ridge for about a mile, the Pilgrim's Way enters Gatton Park, and passing through the woods near Lord Oxenbridge's house, joins the avenue that leads to Merstham. Gatton itself, which, like Rygate, takes its name from the Pilgrim's Road, Saxon, Gateton, the town of the road, was chiefly famous for the electoral privileges which it so long enjoyed. From the time of Henry VI until the Reform Bill of 1832, this very small borough, returned two members to Parliament. In the reign of Henry VIII, Sir Roger Copley is described as the burgess and sole inhabitant of the borough and town of Gatton, and for many years the constituency consisted of one person, the lord of the manor. At the beginning of the present century there were only eight houses in the whole parish, a fact which naturally roused the ire of William Cobbett. Before you descend the hill to go into Rygate, he writes in one of his rural rides, you pass Gatton, which is a very rascally spot of earth, and when rainy weather detained him a whole day at Rygate, he moralises in this vein. In one rotten borough, one the most rotten too, and with another still more rotten, up upon the hill, in Rygate and close by Gatton, how can I help reflecting? How can my mind be otherwise than filled with reflections on the marvellous deeds of the collective wisdom of the nation? These privileges double the value of the property, and when Lord Monson bought Gatton Park in 1830, he paid a £100,000 for the place. But the days of close boroughs were already numbered, and less than two years afterwards the reform build deprived Gatton of both its members. The little town hall of Gatton, where the important ceremony of electing two representatives to serve in Parliament was performed, is still standing, 
an interesting relic of bygone days, on a mound in the park, almost hidden by large chestnut trees. Gatton House is chiefly remarkable for the marble hall built by the same Lord Monson, in imitation of the Orsini Chapel at Rome, and adorned with rich marbles which he had brought from Italy. The collection of pictures, formed by the same nobleman, contains several good Dutch and Italian pictures, including the Vierge au Bas-Relief, a graceful holy family, which takes its name from a small carved tablet in the background. It was long held to be an early work by the great Leonardo da Vinci, and was purchased by Lord Monson of Mr. Woodburn for £4,000, but is now generally attributed to his pupil, Cesare da Sesto. Like so many of the churches we have already mentioned, like Seal and Wanborough, and the chapels of St. Catherine and St. Martha, like the old church at Titsy and the present one at Chevening, Gatton was originally a pilgrim's church. Now it has little that is old to show, for it was restored by Lord Monson in 1831, and adorned with a variety of treasures from all parts of the continent. The stained glass comes from the monastery at Ayrshot, near Louvain, the altar rails from Tangres, the finely carved choir stalls and canopies from Ghent, and the altar and pulpit from Nuremberg. Like most of the medieval woodwork and glass which has come to England from that quaint old town of toil and traffic, quaint old town of art and song, these last are said to have been designed by the great master of the Franconian city, Albert Dürer. The Pilgrim's Way, as has already been said, runs through Gatton Park and brings us out close to Merstham, and through lanes shaded with fine oaks and beeches we reach the pretty little village, with its old timbered cottages and still older church buried in the wood. Local writers of the last century frequently allude to the Pilgrim's Road as passing through this parish, although its exact course is not easy to trace. It seems, however, certain that the track passed near Lord Hilton's house and south of the church, which stands close by. In medieval times, Merstham formed part of the vast estates held by the monks of Christchurch, Canterbury, and was bestowed upon them by Athelstan, a son of Ethelred the Unready, in the 10th century. There was a church here at the time of the Norman Conquest, but the only portion of the present building dating from that period is a fine old square Norman font, which, like several others in the neighbourhood, is of Sussex marble. Of later date there is much that is extremely interesting. The tower and the west door are early English, and the chancel arch is adorned with curious acanthus leaf mouldings, while the porch and chancel are late perpendicular. After passing Merstham Church, the track is lost in a medley of roads and railway cuttings, but soon the line of yews appears again, climbing the crest of the hill, and can be followed for some distance along White Hill, or Quarry Hangers, as these downs are commonly called. The next object of interest which it passes is the war camp, or Cardinal's Cap, as it is sometimes termed an old British earthwork on the face of the chalk escarpment. Then the path turns into a wood, 
and we leave it to descend on Godstone. This is a fascinating spot for artists. The low, irregular houses are grouped round a spacious green and goose pond, shaded by fine horse chestnuts, and there is a charming inn, the White Hart, or Clayton Arms, with gabled front and large bay windows of the good old-fashioned type. A beautiful village, wrote Cobbett ninety years ago, chiefly of one street, with a fine large green before it, and with a pond in the green. And he goes on to speak of the neatness of the gardens, and of the double violets, as large as small pinks, which grew in the garden of this same inn, and of which the landlady was good enough to give some roots. Happily for his peace of mind, he adds, the vile, rotten borough of Bletchlingley, which lies under the downs close by, is out of sight. From Godstone, it is a pleasant walk over the open commons along the top of the ridge, looking over the Weald of Sussex and across the valleys of Sevenoaks and Tunbridge to the Kentish Hills. Once more we track the line of the Pilgrim's Way as it emerges from the woods above the Godstone quarries and, passing under Winders Hill and by Marden Park, reaches a wood called Palmer's Wood. The name is significant, more especially since there is no record of any owner who bore that name. Here its course is very clearly defined, and when, in the autumn of 1890, pipes for carrying water out of the hill were laid down, a section of the old paved road was cut across. A little farther on, at Limpsfield Lodge Farm, just on the edge of Titsy Park, it formed the farm road till 1875. At this point, the path was ten feet wide, and the original hedges remained. Before entering the park of Titsy, the way runs through part of Oxted Parish, where a spring still bears the name of St Thomas's Well, and then reaches Titsy Place. Few places in this part of Surrey are more attractive than this old home of the Greshams. The purity of the air, praised by Aubrey long ago for its sweet, delicate and wholesome virtues, the health-giving breezes of the surrounding downs and commons, the natural loveliness of the place, and the taste with which the park and gardens have been laid out, all help to make Titsy a most delightful spot. Its beautiful woods stretch along the grassy slopes of Botley Hill, and the clump of trees on the heights, known as Cold Harbour Green, is 881 feet above the sea, and marks the loftiest point in the whole range of the North Downs. Wherever the eye rests, one ridge of wooded hill after the other seems to rise and melt away into the soft blue haze. Nor is there any lack of other attractions to invite the attention of scholar and antiquary. The place is full of historic associations. A whole wealth of antiquities, coins, urns, and pottery have been dug up in the park and some remains of roman buildings were discovered there a few years ago close to the pilgrim's way after the conquest titsy was given to the great earls of clare who owned the property at the time of a doomsday survey in the fourteenth century it belonged to the uverdale family 
and two hundred years later was sold to Sir John Gresham, an uncle of Sir Thomas Gresham, the illustrious merchant of Queen Elizabeth's court and the founder of the Royal Exchange. A fine portrait of Sir Thomas himself by Antonio Moore now hangs in the library of Titsy Place. Unfortunately, the Greshams suffered for their loyalty to Charles I, and after the death of the second Sir Marmaduke Gresham in 1742, a large part of the property was sold. His son, Sir John, succeeded in partly retrieving the fortunes of the family and rebuilt and enlarged the old manor house, which had been allowed to fall into a ruinous state. But the Tudor arches of the east wing still remain, as well as much of the fine oak panelling which adorned its walls, and the crest of the Greshams, a grasshopper, may still be seen in the hall chimney-piece. The present owner, Mr. Leveson Gower, is a lineal descendant of the last baronet, and inherited Titsy from his great-grandmother Catherine, the heiress of the Greshams. The 14th century church was unluckily pulled down a hundred years ago, because Sir John Gresham thought it stood too near his own house. But an old yew in the garden, and some tombstones of early Norman date, still mark its site. The course of the pilgrim's way through the park is clearly marked by a double row of fine ash trees, and the flint stones with which the road itself is paved may still be seen under the turf. Further along the road is a very old farmhouse, which was formerly a hostelry and still bears the name of the Pilgrim's Lodge. From Titsy the way runs along the side of the hills under Tatsfield Church, which stands on the summit of the ridge, and about a mile above the pretty little towns of Westerham and Brasted. Here the boundary of the counties is crossed, and the traveller enters Kent. Soon we reach the gates of Chevening Park, where, as at Titsy, the Pilgrim's Way formerly passed very near the house, until it was closed by Act of Parliament in 1780. The manor of Chevening, originally the property of the See of Canterbury, was held in the 13th and 14th centuries by the family of Chevening, from which it passed to the Leonards, who became Barons Dacre and Earls of Sussex. In the last century it was bought by General Stanhope, the distinguished soldier and statesman who, after reducing the island of Minorca, served King George I, successively as Secretary of State and First Lord of the Treasury. Inigo Jones built the house for Richard Leonard, Lord Dacre, early in the 17th century, but since then it has undergone such extensive alterations that little of the original structure remains and the chief interest lies in a valuable collection of historical portraits, including those of the Chesterfields, Stanhopes, and the great Lord Chatham. The last-named statesman, whose daughter Hester married Charles, Lord Stanhope, in 1774, was a frequent visitor at Chevening, and is said to have planned the beautiful drive which leads through the woods north of the house to the top of the downs. The little village of Chevening lies on the other side of the park, just outside Lord Stanhope's gates, and close to the old church of St. Botolph, which was one of the shrines frequented by the pilgrims on their way to Canterbury. 
There are some good early English arches in the nave and chancel, and a western tower of perpendicular date. The south chapel contains many imposing sepulchral monuments to the different lords of the manor. Amongst them are those of John Leonard, who was sheriff of the county, and held several offices under the crown in the reigns of Henry the Eighth and Elizabeth, and of his son Samson, who with his wife Margaret, Lady Dacre in her own right, reposes under a sumptuous canopy of alabaster, surrounded by kneeling effigies of their children. There is also a fine black marble monument to the memory of James, Earl of Stanhope, the Prime Minister of George I, who was buried here with great pomp in 1721. He was actually in office at the time of his death, and was taken ill in the House of Lords, and breathed his last the next day. But the most beautiful tomb here is Chantry's effigy of Lady Frederica Stanhope, sleeping with her babe in her arms, and an expression of deep content and peace upon her quiet face. Storms may rush in, and crimes and woes deform the quiet bower. They may not mar the deep repose of that immortal flower. End of chapter 7